1: Hello and welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Timothy Noonan. We talked about the current situation in Afghanistan, the refugee crisis in the country and also the US media discussion around the American withdrawal and what descriptions of Afghanistan as a graveyard of empires or a second Vietnam obscures regarding the history of the country in the 20th and 21st centuries. Today's show is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon and also by Verso Books, who have lots of excellent titles that may be of interest to PTO listeners. One that you might like to check out is Full Surrogacy Now, Feminism Against Family, by Sophie Lewis. A landmark text of visionary feminist thinking, Full Surrogacy Now is out in paperback from Verso Books this month. Offering a radical utopian vision of feminism, family and gestational labour, Sophie Lewis's writing offers new possibilities for living. Get it along with everything else Verso publishes by joining their book club. Verso book club subscribers get all titles that Verso publish each month in ebook format with options to also receive the books in the post. And now to today's interview. Timothy Noonan is a lecturer in the Department of Global History at the Free University of Berlin where he leads a research group devoted to the history of Islamism during the Cold War. We talked about his recent article in Noma magazine, The End of Nation Building. If you'd like to hear the extended version of today's interview, then please consider becoming a £3 supporter of the show on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. So we're speaking on Tuesday the 31st of August, the day after the United States finally ended its 20-year presence in Afghanistan with the withdrawal of the remaining American troops and, and the evacuation of some... 120,000 civilians, though, with thousands still left stranded. We'll come on to the the history of Western military intervention in the country more generally in a moment, I think. But first, I just wanted to get a sense from you of the way in which the withdrawal and and the Taliban's dramatic takeover of of the urban centres of the country, after having been in control of the countryside for some time, is being discussed in the US media, both on the right, but also in more liberal circles and, and the discussion around what this means as well for Joe Biden's presidency.
0: Uh, yeah, well, uh, thank you for the opportunity to, to speak, and it's a great question. I think it's really important to, to include the right in this discussion because it can be easy to lose oversight over that. You know, if you look at websites like uh, Fox News or uh, Newsmax or OAN on the right, I think the message is pretty simple, that they want Joe Biden to resign. They view this as a um, world historical humiliation for the United States, and uh, this is you know, perhaps part of Biden's uh, plan to let uh, China and um, uh, to a lesser extent, Russia, take over American uh, leadership. You know, more to the center or to the kind of uh, sort of hawkish uh, liberal consensus, uh, we have seen a number of military figures and figures from U.S. intelligence of past administrations like uh, Leon Panetta, state basically that Afghanistan under the Taliban is going to become a haven for international terrorist groups such as ISIS-K. So in effect, the message is we may need further intervention and this is a problem that has to be internationalized again. There have, however, been some surprises outside of this kind of liberal interventionist uh, consensus that, you know, will focus on issues like women's rights and, and international terrorism. Folks like uh, James Carville, who was a prominent advisor to uh, Bill Clinton during his 1992 presidential campaign and rise to the White House, had kind of a surprising pushback saying, you know, look, there's really kind of no elegant way to lose a war and um, as uh, difficult as some of the images may be of the last couple of days, at least from an American perspective, this is, this is not about a war that was lost in 2021. This is about a war that was lost in 2011 or perhaps even from its very inception. So we see a lot of differing responses and I, I suspect we'll see continuing interpretation
1: of this as the war over the war's memory begins, starting today, I suppose. And on the criticism from the right that Joe Biden has come in for due to the withdrawal, does that also encompass criticism of Donald Trump, given that this was also his policy to withdraw? Is he seen as a kind of an aberration and these people are, are, you know, very much attached to perhaps the foreign policy of George W. Bush?
0: You know, it has been interesting. Uh, If we're talking about the Fox News Trumpist right, I, I really have seen very little discussion of the uh, agreements with the Taliban, which were, of course, done under Trump and with folks like Mike Pompeo, who may himself try to run in 2024. You know, but I think it's kind of a feature, not a bug of that part of the right wing press that there's not always a lot of uh, coherence uh, to the argument. (laughs) Consistency. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think I think it's actually uh, an ascent uh, to to not have to be uh, intellectually consistent all the time in that in that regard. I think where you're seeing more maybe of a principled position, one that I don't agree with, you know, is coming from folks like Eli Like, you know, a prominent you know advocate of U.S. military intervention abroad, and you know, folks like that. I think are arguing that it might have been possible to keep a force of uh, twelve thousand U.S. soldiers. In or around Kabul, and and maybe the Afghan government could have have negotiated a better deal with the Taliban, or perhaps having those troops in or around the capital would have made for a more orderly withdrawal. You know that might be true, but we have to keep in mind that one basis of the kind of uh, Trump Pompeo Khalilzad Taliban deal was that there would be a ceasefire between the Taliban and and U.S. forces. You know until this year. So presumably, if you had left those forces in, you would have been seeing not the already tragic number of dozens of Americans being killed in bombings, but perhaps hundreds uh, or more. And, you know, I think that's a a cost that the Biden administration did not want to take on.
1: Yeah. And and the Taliban themselves have suggested that the 31st was a sort of a hard deadline for them, whether one believes that or, or not. So obviously, intervention in the country and and calls for US forces to remain or or return to the country even are typically justified with appeals to Afghan human rights and and obviously terrible human rights record of the Taliban. But as you point out in your article in Noma magazine, the response of Western governments to the plight of Afghan refugees has been pretty appalling in in many cases. Can you say something on that and what position you think Western policymakers both in the US and, and Canada but also Europe should be taking regarding those seeking to flee Taliban rule?
0: Right. So, in terms of you know what has happened this far, you know we have seen calls for the United States to expedite or expand the so-called special immigration visas, or I believe the other category. I may be misstating the letter, but I think it's called P two. You know, and we have seen something on the order of you know tens of thousands of, of Afghans being evacuated already. We've seen videos of folks arriving at military bases in Wisconsin, uh, Texas, and elsewhere. Charities are doing great work. What I think is interesting, though, is that you're seeing a kind of, I don't know, a little bit of post-traumatic di- disorder, maybe a little bit of, I don't know what to call it, but but sort of reference to the 2015 so-called refugee crisis in Europe, where we're seeing right-wing ideologues like Stephen Miller and uh, Tucker Carlson, both prominent figures on the American right, saying, you know, Joe Biden is going to try to do to the United States what Angela Merkel did to uh, Germany in terms of basically trying to turn it into a uh, supposedly Muslim majority country or, or something like that. I don't know. On the European side, we are seeing, you know, I think overall a dispiriting response. Uh, prominent German politicians such as Armin Laschet, the prime minister of Nordrhein-Westfalen and Germany and the leading CDU Christian Democrat candidate in the um, German uh, uh, elections, which are going to happen in, uh, in about three weeks. You know, he was saying that 2015 can't repeat itself. Austria, which is governed by a coalition between the Christian Democratic Party and the Greens, interestingly, has announced that it is going to take literally no refugees. Greece, likewise. But there are, you know, pieces of nuance to this as well. Albania and Kosovo have agreed to take several thousand refugees, partly due to their own history, but perhaps partly because they want to be, you know, really tip-top allies to the United States, uh, on whom they depend a lot for their security. So, you know, but I think if you had to sum it up, you know, I think the the pattern thus far is kind of every man for himself. We haven't seen any attempt or really ambition to have a, what the Europeans or the Germans call a, a distribution key. That is to say some kind of agreement whereby each country would, you know, agree to take on maybe half a percent of its own population and, you know, distribute those people inside of the country. So looking at American media but honestly especially German media the last week or so I've been really struck by these discussions in which TV moderators try to get people to commit to you know some hard number like it's going to be this huge surprise or this scandalous figure and I think the fact that there is a lack of predictability and systematization of this problem is a cause for despair instead we have this this kind of game of charades where you know media personalities and the right wing press is trying to get somebody to commit to, to some number, and then they will say, oh, well, actually, this, in, this involves all their family members, and, uh, you know, you should be really shocked by this. I think it's really unfortunate. You know, I think the only bright spot is that the U.S. seems to be making good efforts in terms of relocating people and, uh, in some regards, leading the charge for resettlement alongside, of course, the, the huge numbers of people who are fleeing to countries like Pakistan or attempting to flee to, to neighboring countries like Tajikistan and Uzbekistan right now.
1: In that same article, you tackle the comparisons that are frequently made between wars in Afghanistan, including the current or recently terminated war and the US withdrawal, which is being compared with the fall of Saigon in 1975, but also the Soviet-Afghan war of the 1980s, which has often been described as the Soviet Union's Vietnam and is is described as the cause of the fall of the Soviet Union indeed. Can you talk about those comparisons and, and what makes you a bit uneasy about them?
0: Yeah, I, I think it's kind of an understandable metaphor for people to, to grasp for, but I think there's also a lot of key differences that we, we really ought to keep in mind. You know, first off, we might ask ourselves, you know, where were the videos of, of you know, the Soviet helicopters evacuating from the, the rooftop of the safe house in Kabul? Where were the photos of the Soviets, uh, you know, airlifting people out of the uh, Kabul airport? Well, we don't have them. Why? Well, one reason is that the Soviet Union bordered Afghanistan. This was a primarily land withdrawal. For the Soviet Union, the war in Afghanistan was to some extent about securing its uh, southern border and preventing, as it sought, a kind of spread of Islamic fundamentalism into its southern republics in particular. This also meant that Afghanistan was a kind of existential issue, if you will, for the Soviet Union as opposed to being on the other side of the planet, in the case of the United States, something that, you know, I think is sometimes lost in media discussions today. There are other key differences, though, as well. You know, the United States was intervening to, in effect, prop up a European colonial regime in uh, Vietnam originally, whereas the Soviet Union intervened to murder a communist regime and replace it with a, a different one. You know, the United States, while it was certainly humiliated in Vietnam, you know, as historians have pointed out, was, was in many ways able to pivot away from its pursuit of nation building at that time and, and embrace a new kind of model of American empire centered around financial hegemony, kind of mastery of economic globalization and, and other such factors. The Soviet Union in contrast really wasn't able to pivot into this new model of kind of financialized empire. So you know obviously there, there are certain parallels involved, but I, I think it's really crucial to, to keep some of these distinctions in mind before tossing around the parallels too much. We might you know perhaps instead think of parallels like the like Egypt's war in Yemen in the 1960s, a similar attempt to build socialism in a in a rural environment that failed for similar reasons uh, to the Soviet occupation. It, you know, broadly, I would encourage people to, to kind of, you know, expand our historical repertoire a bit. I, I know in the British context, I've been seeing this compared to the uh, Suez crisis. So, um, you know, this and, and Vietnam, I, I think it gets, uh, I don't know, a bit patronizing, frankly, to citizens and listeners.
1: Yeah, the Suez comparison is deranged, really, <laughs> because, you know, the, the, the tone this seems to take is that suddenly, British politicians are affecting to have discovered that we're not able to act independently of the United States. And if the United States gets out of Afghanistan, then that terminates our presence in the country as well as if this is some sort of new phenomenon in the international system. It's very, very <laughs> yes. odd. So another point you make about those Vietnam comparisons, I think I may have seen you making it on Twitter rather than in the article, is in terms of the dominance of the political imaginary of the baby boomers. and And it brought to mind Joe Biden's comments during a a press conference in July, where he was asked about the possibility of a situation akin to the fall of Saigon occurring in in Kabul. And when he was rebutting that suggestion, he actually referred to the specific number of battalions of of the North Vietnamese army that took part in in taking the US embassy, which seemed a very striking instance of, of the point you've talked about. And perhaps a president of a younger generation wouldn't have that folk memory about the American war. In Vietnam, I mean, just how dominant do you think Vietnam still looms, and how strange do you think that is, given how how far away we are from the war now?
0: Well, I, 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 you know, I think it it looms quite heavily, but you know, as I suggest in the article and and suggested in a Twitter thread, you know, kind of as a as a footnote, but I think it's uh, definitely uh, of all worth uh, picking up and and playing with a little bit. It's really quite striking to me in a lot of these discussions about foreign policy issues. I think, particularly in the Middle East, how much a kind of a memory hole there is for the period after 1975. You know, if we want to talk about how does nation building work, or or you know, is Afghanistan the proper place to do it, then you know, by all means, let's have a discussion about you know how U.S. and international resources have been spent in places like Kosovo and Bosnia. We might discover that you know to the extent that those states are doing kind of okay it's maybe because they have a regional framework that they can fit into namely the EU or kind of an EU accession process we don't really have that kind of framework for Afghanistan and you know that's i think one of many reasons why that project didn't work or you know when we talk about Iran's regional ambitions and how folks in Tehran see the world you know i think a lot of it has to do with the after effects of the Iran-Iraq war a really prominent event in the 1980s. And yet somehow we, you know, I think are still captivated by memories of the um, American uh, hostage crisis in the embassy in uh, in 1979. That was an important event, no doubt. But, you know, I think we need to be a bit more capacious in our historical imagination, you know, especially if we want to, you know, engage constructively, uh, realistically, certainly, but, you know, with countries and peoples whose historical experiences are very, very different from our own. I mean, as I looked up the other day, you know, the average age of, of a person in Afghanistan today is about 18 years old. I mean, they for them the 1970s are like the equivalent of I don't know the 1930s for even, uh, you know, maybe uh, our, our parents' generation. I mean, it, so we we have kind of multiple different scales and registers of historical memory and references playing out that I think can lead to an awful lot of confusion and uh, mutual miscomprehension. It's something I really regret, but I think it's uh, perhaps an opportunity for historians to try to uh, stimulate a
1: more uh, uh, nuanced uh, conversation. I suppose one wonders what people in Vietnam make of those comparisons as as well. Yeah, yeah. Another of the cliches that is trotted out regarding Afghanistan is the talk of the country being a graveyard of empires, referring to the British, Soviet, and, and American intervention. And Afghanistan is often described almost as if it exists outside of history, that it's this medieval society that is periodically the site of these failed interventions, but that it retains its essence as this supposedly backwards society characterised by tribalism and religiosity and and, and not much else. What's your opinion of the way Afghanistan is typically described in in the media? And and why do you think that cliché of the graveyard of empires dies so hard?
0: I think maybe a good place to jump into this is to kind of uh, steal a uh, comment that a colleague and excellent historian of Afghanistan, uh, Shah Mahmoud Hanifi, made, which is namely to ask who lives in a graveyard? You know, in this case, Afghans certainly live in Afghanistan. But if we kind of take up this metaphor, the, the main protagonist is really the empires who happen to die there. But, you know, whereas in reality, we have people who have families, who make literature, who make music, who have children who have aspirations, dreams, et cetera. I really don't know very many people who live or would want to live in a, uh, in a graveyard. You know, so more broadly, I think there's kind of this failure of imagination or lack of empathy involved in, in the narrative. I think that's unfortunate because you know whether you're interested in this from a humanitarian or just a historical perspective, you know, I think Afghanistan's true place or one of its true meanings is as this kind of connective point in the region, both in good and bad senses. You know, even if we want to talk about the Taliban or the defeat of the United States, here I think we have to look at the ways in which uh, you know Afghanistan and the Taliban are themselves a kind of uh, hybrid product of material and ideological forces uh, flowing through the region. Think of these you know men on Toyota pickup trucks using Soviet weapons, inspired by a Islamic school of thought derived from India. This is not about sort of stationary people in place and this sort of never changing locale, but you know, really, it's only if you have this more kind of uh, imaginary centered around flows and exchanges that I think you can r- really even get the geopolitical analysis right, and you you certainly will not get the historical analysis right without, you know, I think keeping these factors in mind.
1: The talk about the country being the, the graveyard of empires. Do you think that also shapes the way in which the refugee situation is described because the implication would seem to be, well, if someone can leave the country, they will. And so everybody who lives in Afghanistan, effectively, who isn't uh, supportive of the Taliban, would immediately want to leave.
0: Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I think it is kind of odd because, I mean, just saying this off the in sort of stream of consciousness, it, it is sort of odd because Graveyard of Empires, in my opinion, is, has been often deployed in the last couple of weeks to um, say, well, you know, it was always a hopeless cause, uh, we did our best, but it was sort of doomed to failure. And yet, as you say, it, it kind of logically follows that if the place is uninhabitable, I mean, as we said, who wants to live in a graveyard, then there should be a kind of right to leave it. And yet that's, of course, not what we're seeing from the likes of Sebastian Kurtz, the chancellor of Austria, or uh, others. So, you know, I think this just highlights how when we start using these metaphors or start using the Vietnam metaphor, we... It really kind of become trapped in these floating signifiers that don't mean a lot. And yeah, it can it can sort of serve a role as useful shorthands. But, you know, I think unfortunately are, are not very helpful when it comes to thinking through our moral or uh, political obligations to others.
1: In the article, you detailed the way in which the US was engaged, although occasionally this has been disavowed, not least by Joe Biden quite recently, but engaged in the project of nation building, particularly since the 2009 surge when Barack Obama increased the U.S. military's footprint in the country. Can you describe what the project of nation building meant in the context of Afghanistan and, and why the government in the end was able to command so little support, less even than the Soviet-supported Najibullah government, which was at least able to survive for a couple of years after Mikhail Gorbachev called time on the Soviet intervention?
0: Right. Great question. So just to, to zoom out very, very briefly, you know, typically when historians talk about nation building in, in the U.S. context, You know, we might go back as far as the American colonial experience in the the Philippines and elsewhere when, you know, the United States kind of built a kind of Filipino colony, but certainly we would have to look at cases in the 1950s when the United States, under the influence of uh, modernization theory, tried to uh, transform foreign nations such as uh, Germany or South Korea or South Vietnam into kind of model non-communist societies. Notably, however, often relying on Regimes that ranged from having pretty good democratic credentials to no democratic credentials in the case of, say, Iran or, you know, the South Korean military dictatorship and so on. In the case of Afghanistan, though, you know, what did this concretely uh, mean? Well, we had the United States coming out of the experience of the 1990s in which there had been significant efforts both in the Balkans as well as in uh, Haiti. And this meant kind of trying to reconstitute Afghanistan according to a modified version of its 1964 constitution when Afghanistan was a constitutional monarchy. It meant creating a very, very centralized government, in effect, taking a lot of the functions that the king used to have, along with the prime minister of the 1960s, and unifying them into this presidential office that uh, Hamid Karzai had. So this meant a lot of power of the central government to Uh, you know, appoint provincial governors, to have a a national army, to have the aspiration to govern evenly across the country, rather than just accepting that parts of the country would not be um, governed at all. It meant establishing something called the rule of law and the expectation that, you know, an independent judicial system, as opposed to tribal custom or Sharia law, would determine dispute resolution across the country. You know, so most broadly, I think, you know, I think a, a useful shorthand to think about this is there was an aspiration of kind of homogenous governing space. Put in simpler terms, this is just the idea that the government should actually control all of the territory inside of its borders and kind of there should be a uniform system of rules inside of it. It also meant that Afghanistan would get a lot of money from foreign donors to do this. And as I try to point out in my article, the history of Afghanistan since at least the 19th century, but certainly since 1919, can in large part be told as a story of the search for foreign subsidies, the search for foreign donors to you know, try to uh, uh, fund the state, although there is often a uh, tightrope to be walked between uh, getting that money and trying to live up to those donors' aspirations and not leading to your own demise by
1: upsetting the population over which you claim to rule. And on the, the second point around why the government in the end was able to command so little support,
0: uh, well, you know, I think there were a couple of reasons. I think the elections were, you know, the elections that took place were largely seen, I, I think rightly so, as fraudulent. You know, this, you know, I think in a, in a sense, in a, in a tragic sense, the United States and its allies succeeded perhaps at, at creating a democratized, very impressive, educated Afghan uh, population. In some of my Twitter threads, I've tried to point out really amazing works of scholarship and writing that have been done by Afghans in the last 20 years, and that shouldn't be left out of sight. But it didn't really succeed at creating a government that had democratic legitimacy. It created a government that increasingly, and especially under Ashraf Ghani, relied more on appeals to Pashtun nationalism, and I think was seen as representing a very specific kind of Pashtun clique, as opposed to the interests of all Afghans, including Tajiks, Uzbek, Hazara, and smaller minorities like Sikhs. And, you know, from stories I've heard recently from Afghans, uh, including those who are in the police or, or military, they tell stories of literally capturing the same Taliban guys over and over again in the same district like weeks after one another. So, you know, I think there were unfortunately many cases of people who were army or, or police commanders often being in cahoots in one way or the other with the Taliban. And, you know, there's been so much uh, really negative talk uh, about Afghans' uh, will to fight in spite of the fact that so many soldiers and police were killed alongside with the civilian population. But ultimately, I think it's understandable that, you know, are you really going to fight for a regime that wasn't elected in fair elections, that is, you know, promoting an uh, interest group other than your own, and that may itself be doing these kind of backroom deals with the enemy? Well, I think under most of those conditions, most of us would probably not want to fight and would, you know, probably try to save ourselves and our families. And unfortunately, now that's what a lot of Afghans are trying to do.
1: On Ashraf Ghani, the, the former president, I was just wondering, as, as you spoke, whether you'd engage with his work, because obviously he was formerly a, a World Bank technocrat, has written books on failed states and state building, and even has a TED Talk, which I haven't actually had the chance to watch. But yeah, have you delved into any of that?
0: I haven't dealt so much with Ghani's work as a, as a technocrat per se. In my um, in my book, I, I really tried to draw a kind of clean line around, say, 1992 or 1996 as an end line. You know, I wrote this book kind of, if you like, during the period between uh, the uh, beginning of the civilian surge and and when Trump got elected, and there was obviously uh, so much going on, but I really felt that I I didn't want to draw too many, at least explicit parallels between what had been going on during the Cold War and the Soviet experience to the experience at the time. I I think in in one of the last pages of the book, Humanitarian Invasion with Cambridge University Press, You know, I I talk about the David Petraeus scandal and the kind of romance of counterinsurgency circa 2010, 2011, which is another part of the story. But in terms of Ghani himself, not so much with the work. As as I indicate in the piece, though, and as uh, my colleague and friend uh, Nick Mulder, a historian at Cornell, has pointed out, it's really kind of remarkable but uh, telling that both Ashraf Ghani, as well as one of Afghanistan's communist rulers... Hafizullah Amin were both graduates of Columbia University in the United States, uh, and I think this this kind of gets back to our discussion of graveyard of empires versus a, a kind of flows based analytic. You know, why is it that two Afghan leaders who seem to have nothing in common studied at the same <laughs> Ivy League university? In New York City, you know, I, I think you have to start thinking about these patterns of international exchange and so on to to think about it more. But I think we'll probably see some closer readings of of Ghani's work as as future attempts are made to historicize the Afghan conflict and and indeed uh, Ghani's uh, role in it.
1: The Taliban is usually analyzed through the lens of, of radical Islam, but the group have also historically been dominant amongst the Pashtun population that makes up something around fifty percent of the Afghan population and, and that crosses the border with Pakistan where there's in fact a larger Pashtun population than, than there is in Afghanistan. Although obviously the Taliban's ideology has much of the of the transnational character of Islamism, do you think there's a tendency to underplay the extent to which the Taliban could partially be seen as a Pashtun nationalist movement or, or at the very least that Pashtun nationalism explains or partly explains the extent to which the Taliban are supported or at least somewhat tolerated, particularly in the in the south of the country?
0: Yeah, this is a, a really interesting uh, uh, question, and you know, I would just take a moment to highlight kind of uh, scholarship that's out there from uh, you know folks by uh, like Alex uh, Strick van Linschoten and, and Felix Kuhn, who, in contrast to myself, actually uh, know the Pashto language and have written really excellent works on the uh, the Taliban. That being said, though, you know, I think one place to start is well, look no further than what uh, ISIS says. You know, according to ISIS K, the Taliban is a uh, sellout nationalist regime. It has nothing to do with their vision of of uh, the kind of global UMA. and you know I think uh, that's that sort of that sort of says it all right there in a sense. I, I think more seriously though, scholars like uh, Anatole Levin at the Quincy Institute have written really interesting analyses of this uh, problem. One starting point for them is that you know historically Pashtun nationalism in Afghanistan has been kind of a problematic project in the sense that fewer, you know, there are fewer Pashtuns in Afghanistan than in Pakistan itself. Pashtuns, while they constitute a plurality of the population in Afghanistan, there, there's no reliable census data, but I think most people would doubt that they constitute a majority of the country. And not only that, in contrast to, say, the Persian language, which is sort of viewed as a non-ethnic or at the very least a kind of urban uh, written language in much of Afghanistan. Pashto, I think is much more strongly and, and has been strongly kind of ethnicized and pushed as a specifically you know Pashto ethnic language by regimes in Afghanistan dating all the way back to the 1930s and and 1940s. So I think you know I, I think there is a I think there is some evidence to think that that the, the Taliban is being perceived at least as a as a Pashtun nationalist, Movement. What's interesting, though, and here again, we come back to some of uh, Levin's observations, you know, in contrast to movements like, say, the Irish Republican Army or the National Liberation Front in Algeria or the Tamil Tigers in uh, Sri Lanka, the Taliban, you know, have not really always been interested in building up permanent uh, state structures it's true that they have these parallel governors and so on but they really haven't tried to always build a state in waiting and indeed recent reporting about how they were kind of hesitant to take Kabul I think bear's this uh, or, or sort of brings out this point Levin and other folks have have pointed out how in a lot of these regions of rural Afghanistan you know the Taliban doesn't necessarily want to build up a a alternative justice system. They're they're kind of happy with these 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 existing uh, norms of Pashtunwali and and uh, Sharia regulation on the one hand. So it's a it's an interesting analytical problem and, and one that I. Uh, and frankly, a bit uh, uncomfortable diving into more and would defer to some of the scholars that I mentioned. But I think this is kind of the puzzle we have to unpack as a kind of liberation movement, if you will, but uh, one that is not quite the same as our existing uh, mental models. I think, you know, if we try to connect this to the variety of empires piece and the the Vietnam piece again, one thing I'd like to or one provocation I want to, to leave to readers of the piece and to this podcast is to kind of abandon the the cliches and floating signifiers that we are comfortable with and, and try to,
1: um, to, to kind of wrap our hands around some of the novelty of the situation here. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you would like to hear the extended version of today's interview and of other PTO shows, then please consider becoming a supporter. You can get access to extended versions of PTO episodes from £3 a month and if you're outside the UK you can also now support the show in US dollars or euros. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll other to sign up. Thanks for listening.